All right, here we are. Y'all ready to get back into the book of Colossians this morning? Some of you are new, you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. We've been uh, once a month going through Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And our text this morning, we're picking up where we left off. It's going to be chapter 3, verses 22 of chapter 3, all the way to the first verse of chapter 4. If you're using a Bible, we provide one of those blue ones. It's on page 1094. So Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. This is the last part of the household code. That's this section. It's the household code in Paul's letter that he presents to the Colossians with the Lord's command regarding how they were to conduct themselves towards one another in the home. In the home, where basically most of life is lived out. Most of your personal life transpires. The home was where the bulk of their personal life was lived out. And and if they were to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, which is essentially Paul's desire for them, his prayer for them, if they were to walk in a manner worthy of Christ by loving others as themselves, greatest commandments towards one another, this is where they were to begin. Begin in the home. And everyone in the church fell within one or more of the following relational categories. Husband-wife relationship, parent-child relationship, and the master-slave relationship. That is, the relationship between the owner and head of the household and his domestic servants. Now, this third category, relational category, is foreign to our own present-day experience, is it not? I don't think we have any masters or slave owners here, do we? It's not something that is practiced uh, as an acceptable and legal institution within our society. What we have instead is somewhat of a parallel, very different, obviously, but we have employment. And we have the relationship between employees and employers, as well as workers and their bosses. And there are clear and fundamental differences between the employee-employer relationship and the relationship between the master and slave of the first century in Rome. However, there are also enough similarities that we would be justified, even obligated, to apply the principles of the Lord's instruction in this passage in Colossians to the employer-employee relationship in our society today. There's enough similarities there for the clear application of these principles to be applied in our employee-employer relationships today. So an employee voluntarily enters into a contractual agreement with an employer to work in exchange for payment, right? That is, to provide an agreed-upon level of work in exchange for an agreed-upon amount of payments. And as long as you remain in this situation, you are obligated to work for this boss or this employer. There's one similarity between these relationships. And also, uh, well, with a, a main difference, unlike the master of that day, your employer is, what, obligated to pay you, right? 
slaves weren't really entitled to payment. Some received some kind of payment, but there wasn't that agreed upon work in exchange for payment. That's not how it worked. But also, unlike a slave, you are a free person, are you not? You're free. Are you free? We're going to celebrate Independence Day, right? We, we have many rights and freedoms afforded to us in our country by the grace of God. It's probably the best form of government in a fallen world governed by sinful men to make sure we, don't, we avoid basically both extremes, anarchy, chaos, or a, a tyranny of the majority to sweep over the minority, or totalitarianism. So we can rejoice and thank God for this blessing that we have. But you are free people, and therefore you are free to leave your job. You are free to leave your job. Your service is voluntary, and you may end, end your employment at any time if you so choose. So this is a very different kind of relationship. You are free. You are free to go. You're free to end this kind of contractual agreement at any time you choose. And depending on the nature of your employment contract, if you have one of those, you may have some legal obligations to fulfill that you had voluntarily took upon yourself. Um, but you are still nonetheless free to go and find employment elsewhere or establish some other means of income. So again, just understanding these clear differences in these relationships. Another similarity between the master-slave relationship and the employer-employee relationship, and the reason why we should apply these principles to our context, is that within both there is an established hierarchy. There's an order in this relationship. The employer or the boss, who is the boss being the representative of the employer, is in the position of authority. And the employee is under that person's authority, as long as they're employed there. However, unlike a master's authority over his slave, your, employer, your employer's authority over you uh, pertains only to your work, and thus it is limited to the realm of the workplace. It doesn't extend into the realm of your home. Whatever job you may have, you still have a personal life. Your home life is distinct from that working relationship you have with your boss, and their authority stops essentially at the door, if you know what I mean. So when we read this passage in Colossians, we understand that for us today, the closest parallel to the social institution of slavery that Paul is addressing in Colossians is that of employment today. However, because Paul speaks to the very nature of work and the general principles he lays down here uh, apply to one's work ethic in general, the passage is also applicable to you who do not fall into the employment category or into this relationship. Because some people are self-employed, so they are both the employer and the employee in that relationship. They have no one over them. Um, also, for example, those of you who are wives and mothers and you are full-time homemakers, you could, perhaps your husband, I mean, he's over you, so in that marriage relationship, but you don't have a, a boss or a workplace employer or authority. Or for those of you who are too young to be employed, but nonetheless have obligations like household chores and schoolwork, the, the bottom line is this passage has principles for us to apply in all these situations, because it's really speaking to the issue of work, our work ethic, and obviously more directly to that employee-employer relationship in our day. So with all that in mind, let's read our text as one unit, starting in verse 22 of chapter 3, going through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Bond servants, or slaves in other translations, 
This Greek word doulos. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So as Paul did with regard to the previous two relationships, he here first speaks to those who are under authority, so to the slaves, in this translation, bondservants, and then he addresses those who are in the position of authority, the masters. So how were Christian slaves in their low, maybe lowest of stations in life to live in a manner worthy of Christ so that those around them would be attracted to the gospel rather than revile it? The first command Paul gave to slaves is that they were to obey their earthly masters. Well, to what extent? What does he say? In everything. In everything. So just as wives, he said, were to submit to their husbands in everything. Just as children were to obey their parents in everything. Slaves were to obey their masters in everything. Why? Because their masters held a position of authority over them, and they were under that authority. Obedience to those in positions of authority over us is good in the eyes of the Lord, who himself has ultimate authority over us and commands obedience from us, does he not? So in God's world, there is order. He is the authority over all of it and commands obedience. And even in the the world of men, there are social institutions or relationships in which there is an established Hierarchy or authority. So in the marriage relationship, husband over the wife, parents over children. And in our day, employers over the employees, right? But God is a God of order. And submission to authority is right and good in his eyes. Because what's the alternative? Rebellion. Sin. Rebellion. Paul followed up this command, obey in everything, with a description of the manner in which slaves were to obey their masters. And employees are to obey their bosses as a way to clarify how godly obedience is rendered. So he's going to color it in a little bit here. He first describes how it is not done. How is it not done? He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. That's not how you obey. To obey by way of eye service is to obey only when you are being watched. Leave the room and like, all right. It's to obey only when you're being watched, and that is when your boss's eye is on you. It is thinking to yourself, my boss's eye is on me, so as long as it remains on me, I will serve that eye with what it wants to see. So, again, boss is in the room. Okay, all right, there we go. He's gone. Did my part. Served his eyes with what they wanted to see. So, 
As soon as you are no longer being watched and the coast is clear, you stop working and doing the tasks your boss has required of you. And what's worse for employees who do this as opposed to slaves is that, what, they're getting paid to do their work, are they not? So you've actually contracted to say, I will, I will work for your money. And so in that case, there's a different situation. It's even worse to be working or obeying by eye service in that situation because by not working, an employee is not only acting wickedly by violating his or her promise to uphold the end of the employment agreement, their end, but employees are effectively stealing money from their employer by doing that. Uh, Rendering eye service is what people pleasers do. And a people pleaser is a person who selfishly seeks to manipulate others for his own personal benefit. So it's, again, not genuinely pleasing them, but just saying, all right, flattery. I'm going to please them by just to get something I want. It's to manipulate people for their own personal benefit. So in what way were Christian slaves to obey their masters? Well, Paul told them what they were not to do. What essentially is we see the world does this kind of fake obedience. Paul said they were to obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, their obedience was to be genuine and without deception. It was to be done with a singular focus on fulfilling what was required of them. Their obedience to their masters was to be continual and complete. It was to be offered with the following attitude, fearing the Lord, that attitude. What does it mean to fear the Lord? We see that all throughout Scripture, right? What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's not speaking of cowering in fear that you would run away from God. It is a, it's a mindset. It's a disposition. It means to rightly perceive his greatness and power and excellence and holiness and authority so that you respond to him with worshipful submission. The one who fears the Lord is under, comes under the Lord's authority. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So out of worshipful submission to the Lord who is our ultimate authority, we ought to be offering continual and complete obedience to those who are in positions of earthly authority over us. Because that's what our Lord commands. If we're submitting to him, we will be obeying those who are in earthly positions of authority over us. And if the Lord required this even of slaves, think about this. If he required it, even of those in in that particular social institution even of slaves, in their extremely difficult position, well then, certainly he requires nothing less of you while you remain under the authority of your employer or your boss in the workplace. So do what you're being paid to do. That'd be the application. Do what you're being paid to do. Follow the orders and directives given to you by your boss and fulfill your responsibilities. Obey whatever might legitimately be asked of you, no matter how small or unpleasant or inconvenient the task is. You're under that person's authority in the workplace. Do all these things even when your boss is not around and no other people are watching. Do all these things out of regard for the Lord who is your ultimate authority. 
who is always present and he's always watching. Your boss's eye might not be on you. He's not omnipresent, but the Lord is. You're always under his, his watch. So act accordingly, because you're ultimately under his authority. The second command Paul gave to Christian slaves is in verse 23. He writes, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And this is very similar to what he said back in verse 17, which, in which he wrote, whatever you do, speaking to the whole church, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So certainly that would include your work, your occupation, your vocation. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, do everything with his interest and reputation in mind and for his glory. That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus or to do things in his name with his reputation and interest in mind and for his glory. Honor him by conducting yourself in ways that are consistent with his will and his instruction. Do everything in his name. Whatever you do, do it in his name. And in verse 23, we see that everything includes the work we do at our job. And so think about what that meant for the Christian slave. Even though he was not free, he could still freely serve the Lord. He was free to serve the Lord, though he was not free in society. There are no constraints on our ability to obey, to obey Christ. Verse 23, I would say, is an affirmation that our job whatever it may be, is a means of serving the Lord Jesus. Even if it's a job that we don't prefer, but we work at anyway because it's the only one we could get. Even if it's a job that requires us to do the most menial kind of labor. Even if it's a job that we find incredibly exhausting mentally or physically, we are to see it as an opportunity to serve Christ by faithfully representing him before others. It's a part of our witness. It's a part of our testimony, our conduct in the workplace. Therefore, Paul says that that should motivate us to work how? Heartily, heartily, literally, literally from the soul. Put your soul into it. We ought to put forth our best effort in the work we do for our employer, no matter what the job is. We must not be lazy in our work. Rather, we must be diligent. The Lord deserves our best, does he not? So notice that Paul says we are to work as for the Lord and not for men. It's not because of the inherent worthiness of our boss or employer that we are to do our best. Right? It's not because their inherent worthiness, my boss, is, my boss is so worthy of honor. It's not because of that. It is because of the inherent worthiness of Christ who calls, who calls us to represent him well before others. So I do it as unto him. Because again, hey, you might have a great boss. You might have a wonderful, benevolent person over you. But you also might 
have the other kind of boss, you know, the one we dread, or the one who doesn't seem to know what they're doing, but they're over you nonetheless in that relationship, right? And you're ultimately doing it not because of that person's inherent worthiness, but because of Christ, and he's called you to work heartily. So I would say, do you, when we look at this, I, I would say it, it redeems and elevates our work. Whatever work you do, understanding it this way, it redeems your work. It elevates it, and it should in your mind. If our work is service to Christ, whatever it may, we may be doing, if it, if it is service to Christ, then small tasks are made significant. Menial tasks are dignified. And yes, even unpleasant tasks can be made pleasant because by them we honor our good and righteous Lord and Savior. It redeems our work, elevates it. So up to this point, Paul has described what ought to be the manner of our work. And now in verses 24 and 25, he, he describes what ought to be the motivation for our work. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why? Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So again, think about who he's talking to at that time. Slaves. Slaves didn't get an inheritance from their masters. They didn't even get full wages if they got any at all. Their masters did not have to reward them for their work. However, Paul assures them, the the Christian slave, he assures the Christian slaves that regardless of their earthly masters, their ultimate master, the Lord Jesus, would reward them richly and abundantly for their faithful service. They would receive a glorious and eternal inheritance. Their labor was not in vain. Think about it. I mean, in our, in our employment and everything, we're getting wages due to us, right? There's reward for our labor. But what if that reward is taken away, taken out of the picture, and we're called to labor? Is it in vain? We're so afraid of that, right? I'm getting gypped in my job. I need to get paid more. I'm missing out. I'm not getting what is due for all my work. You're afraid of... Afraid of it all being for naught. But what's the promise here? No matter who you are, what you do, the work you're doing is ultimately for the Lord, and what's he got coming to you? Glorious, eternal inheritance, eternal reward. This is the inheritance of the saints in light that Paul mentioned back in chapter 1. He spoke of that. The inheritance of the saints in light. It's the inheritance that the Father had qualified them for through the redemptive work of Christ. They had been qualified. You are in Christ. You are qualified to receive this inheritance. Even they who were slaves had, through Christ, received adoption as sons and become heirs of his kingdom. So again, in their earthly station in life, they were slaves. But in the eyes of God... They had received adoption as sons and were considered as firstborns who would inherit the kingdom. They had an inheritance coming. And here's how the apostle Peter described the Christian hope of this glorious inheritance. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he wrote, for context, 3 through 5, we're going to read that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's much to hope for, much to look forward to for the one who is in Christ. The one who, again, he says, guarded through faith and continues in faith by God's power to the end to receive that glorious reward. What is, what is your ultimate motivation in your job? What's your ultimate motivation? Is it the prospect of getting a pay raise or promotion or a bonus or a better office or a better benefits package? Is your ultimate motivation that pension or retirement that is promised to come after you put in your time, devoting years and years of your life to this occupation of yours? Is that your ultimate motivation? None of these things are guaranteed. People can break their promises, can they not? We say, well, we have a contract. It's against the law. People do it anyway. Circumstances can change. Disaster can strike at any time, can it not? What comes of your plans? What about all that you worked for and hoped for? You were expecting to receive. On a small scale, your, your company may go bankrupt. How are they going to give you those rewards? On a larger scale, hey, our entire economy may collapse. It's not without the, outside the realm of possibility, right? Or, well, hey, you might just die. <laughs> right? I mean, two things certain in life. Death. Ugh. But hey, we, we, our days are allotted to us. They are numbered. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. And even in, in the, the, the high quality of life that we enjoy in our present day society, unparalleled in the history of the world, by the way, the access we have to medicine and all these kinds of luxuries in life and, and the expectation that, well, now the, the uh, the rate at which, or the, the extent to which people live is much longer than it was before, and they're living to older years. Should we expect that, yep, I'm going to make plans. Yeah, when I'm 80, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, assuming you'll live to 80? We're not guaranteed tomorrow. So there's that reality. That might happen. So nothing's guaranteed. However, if you are in Christ, if he is your hope, if he is the one who you've placed your faith in to be reconciled to God, to have a hope and a future with God in his kingdom, to be forgiven of your sins and spared from the coming judgment that's coming upon the world. If you are in Christ, you do not have to worry about losing out. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry that all your labor might be in vain. You don't have to worry about that. Why? Because you are guaranteed as Paul says, to receive 
from the Lord Jesus a glorious inheritance as your reward. It will never be in vain for you. That inheritance, what he, uh, when we read Peter, it said it's kept in heaven. It's kept secure. It will not perish. It will not spoil. It will not fade. It is everlasting. And the Lord will not fail to give it to you. So, in light of this, this great hope, we ought to be content with our lot. There's nothing wrong with taking opportunities to improve our station in life. Nothing wrong with that. And hey, in the, in the kind of country we live, in the society we live, there is upward mobility, probably more so than any other kind of society or civilization in the history of the world. Upward mobility? You mean I don't, are my generate the generations that follow me don't, are not perpetually locked into a particular economic class? We have opportunities, right? So there's nothing wrong with seeking to better your situation, taking opportunities to improve your station in life. But whether or not we are successful in our efforts, right? Because again, we may try and it just might not come. We might remain as we are in the same circumstances. Whether or not we are successful in our efforts, well, we ought to be content. And why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? I don't care what your station in life is, where you fall on the, the class level, your you know, economic circumstances or anything, where you live, what you have to do for a living to j- just get by or if you're doing very well and, and it's very easy to get by. The reality for all of us is that we have a glorious, all of us who are in Christ, we have a glorious inheritance from our Lord that is awaiting us, and we will receive it at the end of our short and difficult lives here in this present world that is passing away. You know, we forget that sometimes, right? Life is short and difficult. Life is hard and then you die. What is man's life? A mist? A vapor? Well, that's reassuring gone compared to eternity right short and difficult life in this fallen world and guess what this world this present world john said that is passing away all with along with all its desires all the thing that people live for and are chasing after with everything they got it's all going to pass away do not idolize the temporary and material things that this life has to offer There's some very nice things that we can enjoy, right? And God is good for allowing us to have these little graces. But don't don't idolize them. Don't make them ultimate pursuits, ultimate things. Pay raises, promotions, bonuses, benefits, pensions, and retirement packages are not bad motivations for us to work wholeheartedly, but they are of no eternal value. Are any of those things of eternal value? They're not. Therefore, they must not be our ultimate motivation. They ought to be seen as nothing more than potential, potential, temporary blessings. A great verse to keep in mind, Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, who does that apply to? Keep your life free from the love of money, you rich people who got all this stuff. 
more than you should have? I think so many people like the idea of socialism. Just take it. They don't need it. Take it and give it to me. That would apply to the people who are also poor, right? Because anyone can commit the sin of idolizing money, not being content because I'm not getting what's due to me, what I should rightfully have. I'm angry, ultimately, with God. I feel cheated. The scripture says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with whatever you have. Because who ultimately is the one who gives you think, who, who gives you even the strength to do what you do. It is the Lord your God. If you're in Christ, he's not going to leave you or forsake you. So, we ought to be content. The Lord is your blessing and security. The Lord's your blessing and security, not money. And not only has the Lord said that he will never leave you or forsake you, he has also said, what we see in our passage, that you will receive from him the inheritance as your reward in the end. So what is our business to be in the meantime? We find our answer in the second half of verse 24. And what you see in the ESV translation, some of you might be using a different one, that's okay, it's cool. Most translation, what you're going to see, Uh, is the statement, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. And like I said, that's, that's what you'll find in most translations. However, the Greek form of the verb translated as serving lends itself to be translated in one of two ways. One of two ways. Either with the indicative mood. Oh, here we go, grammar. Really exciting stuff. I saw your ears perk up as soon as I said indicative. But it's a little grammar lesson, all right? So it's either, either can be interpreted in the indicative mood as it is here, thus indicating or stating the action you're serving. Or it can be equally, it, it could be translated in the imperative mood, which would instead com- command the action, serve. While most translators or translations go with the indicative, most commentaries the exegetical ones, the more technical ones, and a lot of the commentators, they go with the imperative, as does the NET, the New English translation. So there is a translation that goes with that. And that's what I would choose as well. Why? Because verse 25, which begins with the conjunction for, starts out that way. It doesn't stand on its own. But it's connected to this statement in verse 24. Verse 25 is the reasoning for this statement, which only makes sense if the statement is translated in the imperative, serve the Lord Christ. So again, you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer. It it doesn't, doesn't work. Serve the Lord Christ. Why? For. Right? There's, there's some motivation offered here. So in the previous verse, Paul's already implied that you are ultimately serving Christ in your work, so he doesn't need to state it here. He's already implying it. He says, obey, fearing the Lord. He says, work, as for the Lord. He's implying you are serving the Lord ultimately in what you're doing. Back in verse 17, do everything in his name. Because as Paul said back in chapter 1, you are now living under his kingly rule. So following the flow of Paul's thought here, having just been told that we are to do 
all our work as for the Lord, knowing that we will receive from him this future glorious kingdom inheritance as our reward, what ought to be the focus, what ought to be our focus, what ought to be our aim, what ought to be our ambition in the meantime? What is our ultimate task in our present occupation, whatever that may be? What is your ultimate task? And Paul gives the command, serve the Lord Christ. You have your work, you have your vocation, your occupation, your work situation, serve the Lord Christ in that. That is the ultimate goal of our daily labor. No matter how small or menial or unpleasant the task, as we said before, we are responsible to complete these tasks. We are to take them on as service to Christ and therefore worthy of our best efforts. Now in verse 25 then, Paul offered another kind of incentive for Christian slaves to faithfully fulfill their earthly responsibilities. Here's the incentive. He says, serve the Lord Christ, verse 25, for... The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Since they were ultimately serving the Lord Christ by their work, if, and again, he's, he is speaking to the slaves still, since they're ultimately serving Christ, if they chose to do wrong and abandon their responsibilities, or deceive, or cheat, or steal from those who were over them, Again, because they were not content. They were frustrated in their situation. They said, I'm going to take, I'm going to take what I, I should be given. But if they, were te- if they chose to, to do wrong, Paul's saying they would be held accountable by their head master, Christ, whom they cannot deceive or run away from. Remember his watch? He, we're under his watch. He is our ultimate master, our ultimate Lord. We do wrong to the ones who are over us in an earthly position. We're ultimately doing wrong to him. And because Christ is righteous and just, he will not bless you for faithlessness and disobedience in your work. It's like, but I'm a child of God now. Everything I do, I should receive blessing from God. He wouldn't wouldn't chasten me. Right? We're under grace, we're under grace. We don't presume on grace, do we? We're saved by grace, but then we seek to be faithful and obey our Lord. So the Lord will discipline you for faithlessness and disobedience. He will discipline you. You will reap what you sow. Cheat your boss or employer, you are sinning against the Lord, and it will not go well with you. There's not a good ending to that. No one is exempt from his rebuke and chastening. I wouldn't want to be chastened by the Lord. The Lord has compassion on those who are oppressed, certainly. He has compassion on those who are in lowly circumstances, absolutely. But that does not mean that he will not hold them accountable for the wrong that they do. So we must take this to heart, especially in light of the notion that many have in our society, that those who are less fortunate than others are somehow justified in rebelling against authority, whether it's by rioting or looting or stealing or cheating or lying. There's a kind of notion that says, well, but they're less fortunate 
we should understand. They have hardships, so rebellion, it's kind of justified. No, it's not. There is no partiality with the Lord. There is a reckoning for all wrongdoing, no matter who does it. No one's exempt. If even the slave was not justified in doing any wrong to his master, if even the slave wasn't justified before God in doing wrong to his master, how much more are you not justified in doing any wrong to your boss or employer? It's the Lord whom you are serving, and it's the Lord to whom you answer. The same goes for those who are in positions of authority. As we see in the next verse, Paul turns to address this group. And this will be brief because he made it brief. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What's the main point here? Masters were equally accountable to the Lord. Not above the law. Not exempt from Christ's rule. They were not a law unto themselves. They were in the highest earthly position of authority in the household of that day. But they were equally under the authority of Christ nonetheless. Along with everyone else. And they had orders to carry out as well. They had obligations to fulfill that their master had given them. They had priorities set for them by the Lord, and that was to treat those under them justly and fairly, right, benevolently, in the same way that they would desire for the Lord to treat them. So what's implied is what was already stated in verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality with the Lord. The command to masters is similar to the commands given to husbands and fathers, namely in the sense that it is calling them to be a help and not a hindrance to those who are under them by being good to them. One commentator described what just and fair treatment from a a master would look like. Be faithful to your promises to them, he says, and perform your agreements, not defrauding them of their dues. Require no more of them than they are able to perform, and do not lay unreasonable burdens upon them and beyond their strength. Provide for them what is fit. Supply proper food and medicine, and allow them such liberties as may fit them the better for cheerful service and make it the easier to them. The same would go with our work situation, right? A boss like that? What a blessing. Those who are over others in the workplace ought to exercise their authority and oversight and do their own work in such a way that would motivate those under them to be faithful and diligent in fulfilling their obligations, which is what the Lord requires of them. So if you are in charge, I know we have maybe some employers, or even those of you who are bosses, right, in some kind of oversight over others, right? You have some delegated authority. If you are in charge, you are to represent Christ well through your leadership and example, since that is why he placed you in that position. So again, as much as we understand, hey, I I got promoted, I earned that promotion. God here, well, God placed you there. Because no matter how much you might have deserved a promotion, sometimes you don't get it. God has placed you in a position, if you are over other people, he's placed you there 
It is a stewardship. You've got to see it that way, a stewardship. And with that being said, I would say that's how we ought to sum up the the roles in this section in the household code. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters, in our case, employees and employers. According to the Lord's sovereign purpose and by his providence, we are in the roles we are in. In the context of these earthly relationships, each one is a stewardship. Each one is a stewardship with responsibilities set before us and tasks entrusted to us by our master in heaven. So, wives, husbands, children, parents, employees, workers, employers, may we be found faithful in these stewardships that God has entrusted to us. May we maintain these heavenly priorities in our earthly relationships for the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning to us as we open it and and see your will for our lives. May we seek to apply these things diligently, and especially as we've considered it today. Lord, may we view our occupation, whatever it may be, whatever work we have before us and responsibilities we have as means to serve your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy of everything from us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would equip us and empower us to cause this word to dwell in us richly and so that we would continually be motivated in whatever it is we may do, that we might do it in the name of the Lord Jesus to the glory of God. And we ask all these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.